I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you to stand at this time for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning will be verses 3 through 5, but I'm going to have us read from verse 1 so that we take in the whole force and weight and scope of the context here. Here is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given unto us. You may be seated. I don't have any doubt this morning that all of us here this morning have heard that old turn of phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And one reason why the phrase is so well worn is because it's so easily accessible. Everybody understands the simplicity of it. That when people are most desperate, they're willing to try almost anything. Turns out that the saying uh, has its roots in the medical field, in the world of medicine. As so many of our uh, words and sayings go, it reaches all the way back to antiquity, to ancient Greece. Particularly this one to the great physician Hippocrates, who said in his aphorisms... Some extreme diseases find the most suitable cure in the most extreme methods. In other words, what Hippocrates was talking about is what we see in the headlines today, that when people are so sick to the point of death, we have what's called compassionate use. Physicians are allowed, according to the law, to give people medicine that is possibly risky and may not work at all and has no proven track record of success in bringing healing. But if a person is sick, get them some medicine. That's the law. We'll see what happens. That's happening all around us today. We see testimony of people standing in lines to take vaccines for COVID that no one knows will work and may even potentially harmful. Others are sitting in hospital beds and plugged up to respirators. And loved ones are giving the okay to physicians to fill them with all kinds of medicines, which are trial medicines. But yet people, because of the desperation, are willing to try just about anything as long as it gives them the simple hope that it might bring a cure. Desperate times call for desperate measures. It's not just in medicine. There's people all around us today who are desperate in a different way, spiritually. They're desperate emotionally. They're desperate psychologically. 
I saw a statistic just the other day that didn't surprise me at all. It said since the beginning of the outbreak of this disease and virus, prescriptions for antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, and for insomnia medication have shot through the roof. It's skyrocketed in use. People are desperate and they're trying just about anything to find something to bring some solace and calm to their life. They're tired of turning on the TV only to find bad news. People want relief from the constant sense that they are feeling that they have to fight for mental and emotional and psychological composure. People just want to be able to step out of their door and back into their old routines. There's desperation all around us. And as the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's true, not just in the world of medicine, but in the world of the soul. The Apostle Paul, I think uh, we could argue here this morning, prescribes desperate measures for desperate people in desperate times. And you can see the desperate measure for yourself. In fact, it kind of smacks you on the forehead like a tube of four. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, contrary to all expectation and, well, perhaps even our own common sense, that if you feel desperate this morning spiritually and emotionally, what you need to do, he says, is exult in tribulations. Exult in tribulations. For the desperate, Paul says, try desperate means. Exult in the very thing that's bringing you your sorrows and suffering. I know that may not have been the desperate measure and advice you wanted to hear about this morning, but the Apostle Paul says, not just try it, do it. Exult in tribulations. Well, this morning we're going to see that this particular spiritual cure and prescription isn't quite as crazy as it sounds because when you understand that in the context of the redemptive grace and the sanctifying grace that the Apostle Paul says God is there standing ready to supply unto you, the prescription is not just a desperate means or a desperate cure. It's, it's a radical exhortation that leads to a glorious result, which is hope. I'm going to unfold that idea this morning of God confirming hope in us through desperate means by His grace under a couple of points. We're going to spend the bulk of our time thinking through the admonition of this desperate means the Apostle sets before us here this morning. But before we get there, before we think about this hope which is confirmed through the pious exercises outlined in verses 3 through 4, what I want to do, first of all, is position the exhortation in its gospel context because it's absolutely essential for us this morning to have that gospel context in view because it's to Christians that Paul speaks. It's to believers that Paul preaches the confirmation of hope through pious exercises of exalting in tribulation. So it's not the weight of the burden of our sermon to speak about this, but certainly let's give some time to it just for a moment here. And you can see the gospel context of the exhortation, the people whom the Apostle Paul is speaking to here in verse 1 as he speaks 
saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great pivot in the book of Romans, isn't it? It's the great pivot in the book of Romans. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was speaking about a very negative message. It was about the total depravity of the entire human race. Who couldn't forget that great chain of scripture references that the Apostle Paul works through in Romans 3. When he says there isn't a single person who's righteous, no, not one. And then he quotes a bevy of Old Testament texts which move literally from head to toe which show us the scope and the sweep of man's depravity. And it's summarized at the end with the problem, the root of, of all of this depravity. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, one. And then he transitions from this point in Romans 3.20 where he says what the law does is it speaks the knowledge of sin to all men and therefore no one will be justified by keeping the law. And he pivots from there to speak about justification by faith alone. And from there right on through the end of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks of this grand foundational biblical doctrine of salvation justification by faith alone. And you learned this doctrine on your mama's knee. So if I went around here today and asked everybody to summarize the doctrine of justification by faith alone as good Presbyterians, you would easily be able to tell me that justification by faith alone is first of all about a legal declaration. That's what the verb dikaiao means. To declare righteous. This is the beginning point of the biblical understanding of what it means to be saved, is that God declares a sinner righteous with respect to the law. And that stands out so sharply in our thinking, because I've already given you the background the Apostle Paul sets forth as the backdrop for the teaching of justification by faith alone, which is that there is not one single person who is righteous. No, not one. So how can it be then that if the apostle is able to say there isn't a single one who is righteous, no, not one, that the hope of the gospel is that God declares those very same people righteous? Sounds like a fiction, doesn't it? But it's not. Because the apostle proclaims this justification is possible on God's part because of Christ. No sooner does he declare that the whole world is enveloped in the swamp of depravity that he begins by saying that we have been justified through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. He speaks of the cross. He teaches us about Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for our sins. He speaks of that one who was strung up between thieves and who shed his blood there who took upon himself the weight of our sin and received the outpouring of divine wrath for, for all of our sin. So how can it be that God declares us right this morning? Because of Christ and because of the cross and because of his shed blood. But it's not just because of the cross, it's because of his obedience. 
Remember that justification is God declaring us righteous, not just free from guilt. That would be one thing. That would be a great thing. But justification is not simply God saying, you aren't guilty. It's more than that. It's God saying, you're righteous. So where did you get that? If not one of you is righteous, no, not one. How did we get righteousness? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Righteousness has been stamped to our account. Here's that great biblical term of imputation. It means to, to reckon something to us which isn't ours. The righteousness of Christ is reckoned to our account. It's imputed to our account. What a great righteousness it is. It's a righteousness which is thorough and comprehensive and, and exhaustively fulfills all of the commandments of God in every way. You remember that great verse the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. When he wants to expound this idea again, he reaches to the Old Testament in Psalm 32. He says, David speaks of the blessing to the one whom God imputes righteousness. But this is it. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is how God can declare someone righteous in his sight. The blood of Jesus cleanses my record from every spot and stain and guilt of sin. And second of all, his glorious, perfect obedience to all the commandments of God is put right on my account. And the way I receive that is by faith alone. This is the other aspect to the glory of the biblical teaching about salvation is that it's entirely by grace from A to Z. There isn't a single aspect of our salvation which is contaminated by us. It's all by work. It's all by faith. We lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and by laying hold of him by faith, we receive everything. One old theologian said that faith is like the hand of the soul, which reaches forth and lays hold of Jesus Christ and all of his perfection, making it up. That's what Paul speaks of here in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, this is the grand instrument of our salvation. A gospel of grace, a gospel free of works, a gospel which is about salvation by faith alone. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul opens up this great letter to the Romans and says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That word eagerness is full of intensity and passion. The apostle says, I, I, I'm jumping out of my chair as I write this letter because I am so thrilled and exhilarated to preach the gospel to you. Why? He says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the reason why Paul was so exhilarated and thrilled and eager and excited to preach the gospel because he preached a great message. He preached a great message, and that great message is simply this, that God saves the sinner entirely by grace. 
as we exercise faith and reach out to Jesus Christ, every single thing that we need is made ours spiritually in him. Well, Paul references this doctrine of justification by faith alone as shorthand. He's pivoting away from talking about it right now. What Paul is really trying to do here as you come into Romans 5.1 is to unfold the fruit of this justifying righteousness. And, and there's two separate fruit here in your text if you look at them quickly. And my aim is not to expound them this morning. It's to simply reference them because they're connected inseparably to what we want to say about the desperate measures. But you can see here, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know, you, you can translate that because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's a better way to translate it. Because we have been justified by faith. In other words, the apostle is giving us the necessary and essential condition to having peace with God. We've been justified. So he speaks of this grand fruit and consequence of justifying faith. God's at peace with us. He's no longer our enemy. You see, the second reference to fruit from justification, it's a different fruit. You can see it at the end of verse 2. We exalt hope of the glory of God. You see, the first part of verse 2 is simply speaking about justification by faith alone in a different way. He speaks about being introduced by faith into this grace, it, it's, it's the same thing as justification by faith alone. He's just saying it in a different way. He's speaking of the same doctrine. And now he enumerates a different fruit. The hope of the glory of God. The reason why I went into all of this just here briefly for us this morning is because I want us to be persuaded that as we read on into verse 3, and as we take up the desperate measures for desperate times prescribed by the apostle, we need to be sure this morning that we're hearing this as a message to believers. We're to be hearing this this morning as those who've been redeemed and purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as you hear this very difficult and challenging and trying command, and by the way, it is a command, you need to hear it as someone who's been bought and paid for with Christ's precious blood. Because what the apostle is doing is telling you, how do you live with this season of tribulation? Or any season of tribulation. Well, you do it as those who've already been bought and paid for with the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's a way for you to live. And so let's move now away from the subjects of this hope to the confirmation of the hope. And the thing that I want us to notice, first of all, is this threefold spiritual chain. A threefold spiritual chain. You see, what the apostle is doing now is he just proclaimed that there's hope for the believer. The hope of the glory of God. So what we've been doing basically is soaring in rarefied air, drawing in the great promises of grace. The apostle has taken us to a mountaintop 
so that we see from this panoramic point the unfolding of the sweep of the landscape below us. And way up here on the mountaintop is all of this glorious grace. And then he brings us down to the earth. He plants our feet squared in the middle of a fallen world. And he says, for those who've been justified by faith alone, there is a way to live. That way of living will lead to the confirmation of the hope of God's promises to you. And so we transition from this, what feels like a spiritual apex, to come now down into the valley of desperation, if you will, where the apostle sets forth for us desperate measures. The aim of it all is so that each and every person who believes in Christ will come to some deep and abiding sense of certainty that the hope of God's promise is for them. That's the whole point of the section. So let's come into our text now and let's look at verse 3. And he says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. You know, he just said in verse 2 at the very end, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, okay, I get it. That's the apex. That's the high point. That's the mountaintop. That's the rarefied air. Come back now. Put your feet on the ground. We exult in something else. Tribulation. You see, the apostle brings us back to the ground and he plants our feet on something that's apparently absurd. That you would exult in your tribulations. The absurdity isn't in the idea of exalting. The absurdity or the apparent absurdity is what we're exalting in and that is tribulations. And this word is a word that's full of intensity. Tribulation speaks of intense suffering, of intense pain of intense trial, of deep struggle. It's one of those words that's a very gripping word in the Greek. It's speaking of life circumstances that feel so overwhelming that we feel like we are literally being squeezed. That's your desperation. Feeling like we're being squeezed. trouble that's so harrowing and so intense and so unrelenting and so obnoxiously won't go away that you get tired and you begin to feel overwhelmed and you feel like you can't breathe you're being suffocated and in that very circumstance of desperation the apostle Paul says exalt So I think this text is for us this morning. If you're not uh, sensing this as a season of exile, of, of tribulation, well, I guess I have some bad news for you. The instruction here isn't really for you. Because this text is for those who are sensing that they're in the midst of, of some difficulty. And the, the good thing is that if you're in the midst of difficulty, what the apostle sets forth for you is a process for you to grow in the confirmation of grace. So it's, it's a blessing to your soul. So if you're not in tribulation, just go ahead and tuck this away. But if you are this morning and you need a word of encouragement, 
so that you can say, here's how I navigate the way forward in faith so it's under the blessing of my soul. Walk with me because the apostle gives the command, exalt in tribulation, and move secondly to the word production. Production. He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. In the word there is production, to produce something. And again, we can translate this because we know tribulation brings out perseverance. See, the Apostle Paul is saying, here's why you can exalt in your tribulations. It's because of what we know. And the thing that we know is that tribulation works spiritual grace. Now, I know that this isn't the case for everybody. It's quite obvious to us that the unbeliever isn't entitled to claim this. So clearly it's not for everyone. And the very fact that the Apostle Paul is commanding believers to do this tells us that unless we're engaging in the exaltation according to the command of God, even the believer will not reap the spiritual reward that he's proclaiming here. They're going to have to walk through this themselves. What the Apostle Paul is saying is just because you're in the midst of tribulations doesn't mean anything in terms of its spiritual benefit to you. What you're going to have to do yourself is standing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow what God prescribes, which is to exalt. And to every person that exalts in that which makes them sorrowful. There's a promise. And that great promise here is perseverance. Here we have the first of the great spiritual graces. The pious exercise is very clear. We are to exult in our tribulations because we know something. They will lead to perseverance. And it's quite obvious that God is the agent who procures this for us as we walk through the tribulation in faith. But I want us to see here the great fruit that the apostle sets before those who are in the midst of tribulation. He says, there's something for you, which is this great grace of perseverance. It's that great spiritual fruit that we have seen before called endurance. And we've said before many times that endurance is not patience. Patience is how I deal with people. Endurance is how I deal with difficulty. And what he speaks of here is this great spiritual fruit of endurance, which is about constancy. It's something that's active and engaged and spirited. And what the Apostle Paul says here is the Lord produces that in us if we exalt in our tribulations. And so we can see this morning that the command of the Apostle does not flow from the world of abnormal psychology. Quite rational if you stop to think about it. Because the apostle isn't commanding you to exult in what is sorrowful and bitter. He's not doing that. He's calling you to exult in tribulations because of the outcome of it, what God is going to do. He's causing you to exult in it because your eyes are set upon and focused upon the sanctifying grace of God, the work that he's going to do in you to build you up in grace and confirm you in hope. And so here's step one to, to applying a desperate measure in desperate times, exalting your tribulations because God will take that exercise of faith 
it'll produce a great spiritual grace in you. And that leads to the second. That leads to the second. Proven character. Proven character. And let's make sure that we're appreciating the chain link sequence or the building block-like sequence here. Because each is connected inseparably to what comes before it. So, first of all, the apostle is saying that we have to exult in the tribulation. And by that exercise of faith, that step of faith, God in time works in us a spiritual grace. And now that spiritual grace becomes the building block, the foundation for what's next. The proven character. Proven character. You see here, this uh, word proven character, tested character, reaches back in to the world of precious metals. In antiquity, there would have been a testing process to see whether the gold and silver was counterfeit or fool's gold or fool's silver, if you will, by means of testing and verification. That's precisely the word that is used here. And so what the apostle sets before the believer here is that there is some second great fruit and grace which is for them if they should exercise this faith and apply themselves to the remedy of the desperate measure in their situation of sorrow and suffering. God will not only work this perseverance, but he'll add to it what's more proven character. But here's the thing. The only way that you can get the proven character is by walking through the storm. The only way you can get the proven character is by walking through the tribulation. You see, it's not possible for you to have the proven character by listening to what a storm is like. It's not possible for you to have the proven character by watching the storm or hearing the harrowing tales about the storm. This is something that you have to do. You cannot acquire the grace of proven character for yourself by living through somebody else's experience. It has to be you. It has to be you walking with Christ and trusting in the Lord and bearing the weight of trial and the grace of God. It has to be your struggling through this. But the Apostle Paul says if you feel like you are being squeezed and challenged and you start exulting in that and God works perseverance in it. He says at the end of it, there's something mm -hmm. great here. Not just perseverance, but proven character. And he says you can't have that by walking through a path of ease. That leads us to remember this morning that there's something that we ought to do besides what the Apostle Paul says here. Or maybe it's even bound up in the exulting in the tribulation. We ought to thank God for our difficulties. Because it's impossible for us to go into maturity in Christ. Unless we have our time of difficulty. And that tells us something this morning, people of God. It is our duty and our responsibility to take the providence which God has handed us. And make the most of it out of it for ourselves spiritually. It's a command. There's no way to get to the end without it. Exalt in your tribulations. Because that will produce perseverance, which leads to proven character. And then thirdly, we see at the end of the chain of linked graces is what? Hope. The grace of proven character 
produces hope. The personal and subjective assurance that God will provide, that God will deliver, that God will be faithful, that God's word won't fail. The person who has that kind of hope is somebody that's exalted in the tribulations and knows the fruit of perseverance. And because they know the fruit of perseverance, they have a tested character. And so when they speak like hope-filled people, it doesn't sound hollow. I hate hearing people try to give hopeful words and they just sound empty. And one reason why that word may sound empty is because the people who are saying them have never followed the prescription the apostle sets forth here. They don't have any proven character. And so all the pious sounding remedies and the speech that they have to offer may be all right formally and technically, but it doesn't flow out of a heart that's been sanctified by grace that hasn't grown in this fruit of perseverance and doesn't have this confirmed and tested character. All of them are essential. Both of those elements are critical. The Apostle Paul sets forth hope as the great chain, end of the chain here. This is the work that God aims to do in the believer in the midst of a series of great tribulations and trials. But the hope doesn't come apart from the storm. It doesn't come apart from the exaltation and the tribulation. I think that's important for us to remember this morning in this particular day and age. I can't tell you how many people I've seen interviewed on TV, religious experts and professionals who come on to give the faith perspective, and they keep on wanting to return to this great touchstone of hope. And I can understand why they would want to do that. This is one of those unique and precious Christian doctrines. No other religion has hope to offer. Only Christianity has hope to offer. This is a part of that great Christian triad of graces, faith, hope, and love. It's unique to Christianity, and the reason why it's unique to Christianity is it's built into the entire system of Christianity, which is about salvation in Jesus Christ applied now and consummated on his return. Without that structure and framework, there isn't hope. I can understand why people want to speak about hope. But you see, people of God, you, you can't have real hope by people speaking about it in warm, soft tones. And the person on the other side just sort of breathing in hope with all of the flowery descriptions about it. You can't give somebody hope that way. They can't obtain hope that way. The Apostle Paul says you don't just stumble into hope. Yeah, hope is given you as a grace, but it has to be fanned and cultivated and built up and confirmed. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He said the way we have that confirmation in hope, the way it becomes deep and abiding and sinks into the depth of our soul is by committing ourselves. To desperate measures. Exalting. In our tribulations. That means then that those who. Secure this hope by God's grace and his provision. 
are going to walk away from their tribulations with the brand marks of sufferings. They're going to have the scars to prove they've been through the storm. They, they won't come out of it uh, uh, unscathed. No, that, that's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is if you walk through the fire and Christ is with you, he brings you out on the other side and he's done a great work in you. Grant you perseverance. Grant you proven character. Grant you confirmation in hope. There's something in this text this morning that really drives it all home for us for our, for our deepest consolation. And that's how the Apostle Paul goes on to speak of the assurance of this confirmation and hope. I, I want you to see it for yourself. Bible open, look at verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice that initial conjunction in verse 5, and the apostle is connecting what he has just said about these this threefold spiritual grace, which is confirmed in us through this mechanism of the desperate means and he takes it all, and he wants to drive home the assurance of it. As he says, and hope does not what? It doesn't disappoint. It doesn't disappoint. It doesn't deceive us. You see, I think the apostle is saying something here which is for our benefit. And if, if you don't need that benefit this morning... I suppose it's fine with me. You're all very strong believers. But I suspect the Apostle Paul as a good pastor was anticipating that there was somebody who heard this and had the gnawing concern that if they committed themselves to the pious exercise like he prescribes here, that it would be like a check lost in the mail the graces would never come. I suspect he's addressing people who are concerned about committing to such radical and desperate measures with the fear that it wouldn't work. After all, it's not regular advice to exult in your tribulations. And what he does here to me is just absolutely masterful under the Holy Spirit's guidance here. The, the apostle says, and this hope that I'm talking about, this outworking of hope, according to this means and prescription, it doesn't disappoint. It doesn't deceive. You won't get to the end of the journey and find a pot that's empty. Exulting the tribulations won't fail. And the reason is not because of the spiritual elbow grease that you applied. The good news in our text this morning is the reason why it won't fail is the unspeakable grace and love of God. I want you to see for yourself the connection the Apostle Paul forges in the text right after he says this hope, which is the climax and the culmination of this chain of threefold um, grace, this confirmation and hope. He says it won't disappoint. And now he tells you why. Because. Because. 
the love of God. See, uh, the apostle gives us great assurance this morning that the end of the journey doesn't leave us with despair and emptiness. The apostle is saying to you this morning is, is you can trust the prescription in your desperation because God takes it upon himself to deliver what he's promised. It's because of the love of God. Think about this love too, which he speaks of. This is not about our love to him. It's about his love to us. And right below us in this text, we have a statement of what the love of God looks like. Just look down in your text with me this morning. You see it for yourself beginning at verse 7. For one hardly dies for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying is if you want to understand in some some measure, some faint trace outline of what the incomparable and marvelous love of God looks like. Look at human relation. Someone would maybe die for a righteous man. For a good man, it depends upon the day. But for an enemy, we've all heard of the stories of battle, of how the hero on the battlefield jumps on the grenade to save his friends, his buddies. We don't hear him about the hero diving on the grenade to, to shield his enemy. But this is exactly the example that Paul reaches for here when he wants to magnify and describe in such a way that we can put our hands on it and it feels palpable to us what God's love is like. He says, while you were enemies, Christ died for you. The reason why you can trust the prescription is the Apostle Paul says, because of the love of God. And he says, that love of God has been poured out in your heart. And this word poured out is like a stream or a deluge. It is to overflow. It is to fill to the brim. And it just keeps coming out. God's commitment to you to fill you with his grace is unbounded. And it's personally applied, as he says, that it's poured out in your soul by the Spirit of God. He didn't leave it to spiritual forces or mechanical means. It is a personal appointment and provision of the overflow of the love of God in your soul by the Holy Spirit. You see, the apostle is taking great measures here to impress upon us this morning that our desperation is exactly where we need to be if we want to grow in grace. Because as we apply ourselves to desperate means, we have the full assurance of the love of God in Christ to us. That we won't fall short of obtaining is great grace. Perseverance, proven character, confirmation in hope. So we walk away from our text this morning. There's a couple of things I, I 
I want us to walk away clutching. And the first one is in the midst of a time of tribulation. What we need to make sure that we're doing is look to the word of God for our direction and not our emotions. I'll just say it again. In times of tribulation and trouble like we're experiencing, this is the time for us to look to the word of God and not to our emotions or fallen thinking. You see, it's very easy for us to turn to our thoughts and those thoughts are so jumbled and in disarray and they lead us into a world of chaotic thinking and confusion and into a vast, hazy fog. In the midst of that, the apostle speaks penetrating words straight into our minds here. He says, the prescription I'm giving you is based upon what you know. And you know it's true because it's from the word of God. And therefore, it's unfailing in its truth. Exult in your tribulations because you know God works in them to produce perseverance. I know our thoughts are loud and our emotions are loud. And they're very hard at times to squeeze back into the bottle. You don't have to sit here this morning and act strong. It's not the answer to how we deal with difficulty. Because believe me, if that's how you treat difficulty, and you say, I'm strong enough for this one, if I bite my lip hard enough, God will just turn up the volume a little bit more. And he'll turn it up a little bit more. And he'll turn it up a little bit more until finally you have reached a point where you don't have strength anymore to deal with it on your own. So if you're not, if you're strong this morning, this doesn't scratch where you're itching. That's fine with me. The point will come. But if you are this morning, here's what God says. I'm speaking words straight into your heart. If you start to feel weak. You start to feel overwhelmed. The anxieties are beginning to consume you. The negative thoughts are overwhelming you. Don't look to your mind or your thoughts or your emotions. You turn to what you know. The promises of God. For those who have been justified by faith and who are in the Lord Jesus Christ and have peace with God and the hope of glory, God's word speaks to you. Exult in your tribulations because of what you know. God works in them for you, an eternal weight of glory. Turn your mind to the world. And God will draw together those loose and scrambled ideas and shape them with his truth. The second thing I want us to take away from the word of God this morning, and it's good news for us, and stamped all across our text. God's at work. Such a relief to know that this morning. So I sat there and I, I thought about this point of application over and over for the last couple of days. And I said, I hope everybody lays hold of this and finds it to be just the deepest encouragement to the soul this morning. God's at work. 
God's at work in providence. None of this has escaped his hand. Every single thing that's happening right now is by God's sovereign design. He is executing his decrees in providence. There's no accidents happening in the world around us. Everything God is working in. But our text tells us in something different how God is working. God is working for us. He is working for our redemption. The whole doctrine of justification, which Paul references here at the outset of our text, is telling us God is working. But then as we look to Paul's desperate means, which he prescribes here again, we see the testimony that God is working. As you take that step of faith and exult in your tribulations, God is working to produce in you that perseverance. He is working in bringing to pass that proven character. God is working to confirm you in hope. So as we walk away from our text this morning, we have this great testimony of God at work. If we're feeling weak, worn out from our own working, there's some great news for us. God is working for us and in us by grace. And he won't leave us to fall short of the great promise of our text. Hope. It won't disappoint. Father, we thank you this morning for the declaration of the threefold grace here bound together by this great and desperate means of exulting in tribulation. We thank you for the work that you are doing. We pray, oh God, that you would Use this time to sanctify and build your church up and make it firm in grace so that as we walk away from this storm, that we may bear scars. We'll have something more profound and better than scars. We'll have growth in grace and conformity to the likeness of Christ. We'll be abounding in his grace. So I pray, Lord, that you'd take your word today and apply it to all those who hear it by faith that they would know the incomparable love of God which is poured out into us, which will work relentlessly without fail to accomplish the very things you have promised us in your word. So hear us this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.